We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. You've heard the name before, Vladimir Nabokov, probably in the context of Lolita, maybe even because of the Stanley Kubrick film. But today, we're talking about this masterpiece right here, Pale Fire. My past might not be too dissimilar from some of you out there. I've read Lolita, I've read some of his short stories, and I took a little bit of a break for a while. I realized he is just a better writer than I am reader, but I enjoyed the challenge of reading him, so it wasn't a matter of if but when I would return to him. And here we go, returning finally with Pale Fire, and oh my gosh, this might be his best work yet. It is incredible what this book does. It was ranked 53rd on Modern Library's 100 Best Novels, and is even first on American literary critics Larry McAfee's 20th Century's Greatest Hits. And if you haven't heard about this and why it's so great, let me give you the lowdown today. Because when you open this book, you're immediately greeted with a foreword, a poem called Pale Fire, and then commentary and even an index. Look a little bit deeper and you'll see the foreword was by a Charles Kinboat. And then Pale Fire is a poem written by John Shay. Where's Nabokov fit into this? Well, that's the trick, okay? And that should tell you to be on your toes right away. This entire structure is the book, the foreword, the poem, the criticisms, even the index are all in on this trick to get to you. When I say trick, that makes it sound cheap, like you're gonna feel fooled, which is not what happens in this. Instead, like many of Nabokov's adventures, you take one step out and you are just swept away on this literary journey. And yes, that is a terrible reference to Lord of the Rings, but you're gonna have to be on your toes for this one. Nabokov has constant illusions, and you're going to have to accept that he's probably better at English than you are. Because what you're getting with this is an amazing story from front page to the end, where basically what he's doing is creating this fictitious author, John Shade, who writes a poem called Pale Fire. And that's what's included in here. And if enough of you only read that poem by itself, it's a great poem. It really is, and, and, and Nabokov really does an amazing job at writing that, and I will mess up pronunciations, I apologize. And then Kimbote, or Kimbote, he, he knows John Shade. He was neighbors with John Shade. He could tell you all the truth that you need to know as a reader, where basically what he's doing is what a usual forward does of here's things to know about this author. And he tells us about how John Shade is very structured. He's kind of a predictable guy, married his high school sweetheart. And that's when things start to not line up. This poem, written in couplets, sets of two, has 999 lines. Well, where's that missing line? Was it redacted? Suddenly critics start coming out saying that maybe the last canto of the four cantos of the poem weren't written by him. Thus our problem as the reader. How much of Keenboat's story do we believe? And what is the real story here? 
I don't mean to boil this down to just a plot. I am trying to keep this spoiler free, but give you something that would entice you to want to check this out. Because Nabokov's writing is flawless. It flows. It's effortless. There are so many authors that will struggle and stumble. And even you can see kind of craft sentences around this unique little periodic clause or, or word that they want to use. It just flows off of the tongue. And you have to be on your toes, knowing references to Girta, knowing references to the grasshopper and the ant. Nabokov doesn't baby you. He doesn't spoon feed you the information. You as a reader have to be on your toes. And it is a fantastic journey. Even if you don't catch everything, this is a book that was created to be returned to. Because how do you do this? Do you start from page one and move to the back? The answer is yes to that. Well, Keenboat's constantly telling you, well, refer to this line. Check out this thing that I wrote. Refer to this line. This is what we really mean. And there's even a part where it's a recursive. If you follow like the go to this line, go to this line, go to this line, you'll see that it's recursive and he just has you going in an endless loop. But that's the joy of this. And I want to leave you with two main questions, questions that I wish I had been asked when I started this book and something that I think is even valuable. If you've already read this book, I think it's worth for you to have maybe a conversation with me in the comments down below. But the first question I have is what is a critic's role with a text? We have Keenboat talking with a dead author's text at this point in time. Aren't all nonfiction books fantasy? And to an extent, isn't all criticism fantasy? It's something that we are drawing up internally. It's our personal reaction with a book. So how do we choose what criticism gets published and what criticism doesn't? And you'll see as you go through this and you read what Keenboat writes, would this type of analysis actually be presented? Would it actually be published? No. <laughs> But I think that allows us to ask the question of what is criticism's role with us even? When I think and try to define what a critic's role is, I usually like to think along the lines of a critic's role is to try to explain what the text means to us, to humanity. And one of the precursors of that is that it, it probably ought to be points that either are not apparent and the critic can shed some light on it. But what does that mean when some elements might appeal to hundreds of thousands of people? And some points maybe only apply to a very niche, very small, unique group. Do both points end up making it into the analysis that gets published? Probably not. Usually it's those broader reaching points. And that's not to say that those are more objectively true. There is a lot of subjectivity into what we think is important and what we think should resonate with people and people's backgrounds. So the real question is, at what point are we as readers injecting ourselves into the text that we read? We'll see things that either resonate with us or we'll see characters that we like or dislike. Why? Do we know people like them? Are there things of them that we like and want to see represented across our own you know, life and our own relationships? And I think that's part of what the critic's role is. So it brings me to my second question, which is what is art's purpose in our lives? Throughout this book, throughout the poem, there's tons of allusions to death, the afterlife. Is there life after life? If you are a materialist and you believe the only things in life are things that can be touched, uh, measured, what does it mean to have a soul? What does it mean to, to die? Is it really just the end when that happens? And I think that's something that this book kind of explores, or at least the poem explores too. Because what we hear from authors a lot, there's this very famous idea that when you write a book, why do you write this book? Okay, sure, paycheck, that's one element. 
But that doesn't explain all the people out there that just write for free, those people that haven't made it yet and are just passionate about it. There's something to be said about death terrifying us. Death being the great paralyzer creates fear in us and keeps us from moving forward and maybe even from accomplishing things. So when we end our lives, what's one way to prolong that, to put that off as long as possible? Well, maybe that's becoming immortal. And that's one of the great theories of why people create the art of the novel, of the book. It's so that our story lives on in others. And authors can kind of view that as a way of being their statue, right? People will read this for generations and kind of remember me by name. And, and maybe I'll even have my name on like a, like a fun for a school or something. I don't know. But then why do we critique books is the question after that. So going back to that first one and combining it with the what is art is part of why we critique things, not just to understand each other, but also to immortalize ourselves. When our ideas are the ones other people see, and we've written this paper on the death of the author and other famous works in literature, is that not a way to piggyback, to interject ourselves into other people's arts? Is sometimes the concepts out of them more important than the actual book itself? It's kind of like, do you read for characters, plot, or ideas? And criticism is one of those ways that you can latch on and also immortalize your ideas into the general populist conversation. You think about these texts that students have to read semester after semester. It's not that teachers don't have original thought, but they will use typically trodden paths, which started with somewhere. And sometimes that comes back to a name of someone's idea of being immortalized. So that's my second question is what does art mean and what does it mean when we're trying to create these statues of ourselves so that we could maybe escape death? I don't know. This is just one of those books that when I finished it, I couldn't stop thinking about this for hours, days later. So I would love to hear your thoughts down below maybe on this, whether you've read it or whether you're thinking about reading it. You know, tell me how these thoughts kind of land upon you and what your thoughts were on this book. This is one of those books that Fans love to debate. Fans love to talk about and defend their ideas. And uh, I'd love to explore those with you guys. So I'm going to leave an Abakov playlist down below if you'd like to check out other talks that we've had about his books. This is just one that I thought was really interesting and I'd really like to encourage others to read because it's a rare experience for a book to just really challenge me and just expand what I thought a book could accomplish. And this book smashed one of the walls, one of the limitations that I thought books could achieve. And I hope that that's something that you consider happening in your life, in your reading experience. Hit that subscribe button to join us on the journey. This has been Una. Appreciate your time today, guys.